You're tuned in to Positively Terrible. I'm producer Dan, and each week my buddy Scott and I discuss surviving and thriving after trauma. It's a journey that started when Scott, his wife's fiance, and her boyfriend all walked into a bar. This week's decent human being is Uncle Satan. He's got a fucked up story about anxiety and how it can influence thoughts. Settle in, my terrible listeners. Today's episode's going to be Positively Terrible. Hey, Scott. Dan, what's going on this morning? How are you? Man, you know what? Uh, I just got back from the health center and I tested positive for strep throat. All things considered, I feel pretty good. (laughs) All right. So we're being honest this morning. I will say that I'm not feeling my best right now. So you you told me you're at about, what, 85% today? I'm going to yeah. go with eight, 84 for me, just just to okay. get a little extra sympathy from the listeners today. Uh, well, I and, always like a win, so I'm glad I'm on top. <laughs> well, is the higher number the win? You know, it doesn't matter. Uh, I And I was frustrated right before we started uh, recording this morning. I was walking my dog, Baloney, um, sitting right next to me right now, and he was walking really slowly and I think he was getting me back because he found a piece of ham and I took it from him. <laughs> and, I'll, you know, I was thinking about that. That would be like me finding like a gold bar on the ground and somebody being like, nah, not for you. Not, not today, Scott. So I think where, he was like, where was the ham? Was it just like on the walk? It was, it was on the walk. Yeah. It was in the grass. All right, so it was like ground ham. It wasn't like ham that you just personally dropped. It was not my ham. It was ground, yeah, ground ham, but not ground <laughs> like meat. Uh, it was grass ham, we'll call it. And I had to, he got it. He had it solidly. It took a while for me to get it away from him. And then he decided to try to make me late for our recording this morning. But I'm not late. I am here. We are with Uncle Satan. Uncle Satan, do you have any pets? Oh, I do. They're all sitting here right now. I have a a dog and three cats. Uh, Wow. I've got a dog and three cats. I I think today was meant to be. Uh, Dad just got a dog himself. I have a dog and a kid, both that love ham. (laughs) Uh, I'm more of a bacon guy, but ham, you know, it's Thanksgiving next week. I think we'll have some ham alongside with the turkey, unless that's the Christmas meal. I can't remember. My mom takes care of all that. Big shout out to uh, Terrible Rita. Terrible Rita. Yeah. Biggest fan. Uh, But anyway, uh, as I always say, not here to talk about that. Not here to talk about Terrible Rita, ham or dogs. Although if they come up during the episode, I'm perfectly happy to talk about them. But Uncle Satan's here to talk about a little bit about uh, anxiety. So I think that's something that is highly relatable. Uh, I I just right before we got on, I took my Lexapro. So shout out to my uh, anxiety drugs. Also got the Adderall. I did not take this morning, but let's Another go shout back. out to Big Pharma if they're big looking Pharma. for a place to advertise. You could use some <laughs> Big Pharma dollars. All about generic pharma over here. Yes. <laughs> but anyway, Uncle Satan, welcome to the show. How you doing? Yeah. Oh, I'm all right. Um, Actually, Scott, when we first talked a while back, I knew I was getting sick, but what I didn't realize was that it was my first bout with COVID, 
And so I've been dealing with a little bit of long COVID, as I hear you have as well. Oh, fuck. I'm sorry. I I feel pretty terrible still. I think we're about four months later. Uh, I hope you're... But what, and, and let me ask this. I, I do think that this is relevant. How, how has your experience been like uh, physically and mental health-wise with long COVID? Uh, it's been rough, um, particularly as a grad student. I don't think it's terrible, but uh, fatigue and a little bit of brain fog, it's definitely made it uh, that much harder to get back to productivity. Yeah. Tell me about it. I've uh, th- That's exactly what my experience has been. So I'm sorry you're going through that. Hope that it clears up for you. And just personally, I have started going to a long COVID clinic. So uh, if it if it lingers, uh, there are those things. I don't know if you have access to them or are aware, but um, we're, we're working on, on my end over here. But um, let's go back to you a little bit. And you and I have talked already once and got a little bit of your story. Um, and I want to kind of go back and, and talked about who, who you are to begin with. And uh, I think you wanted to start and we often start back in childhood. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about who you are, who, what, what it was like growing up being Uncle Satan? I'm, I'm guessing you weren't Uncle Satan at that time yet. <laughs> no, that didn't arrive until uh, high school. And uh, really, the uncle didn't get added until some of my friends started having kids and had to introduce me. Um, but yeah, I think that part of the thing with childhood is that we all have some form of childhood trauma, and we don't necessarily realize how it influences where we run into other trauma. And I think that's part of, you know, where my story uh, starts and really ends up. So my parents, as you know, a lot of folks experience, got divorced when I was very young. I was uh, three years old when that happened. And it was pretty acrimonious. Uh, We moved um, so with my mom, so we didn't see my dad for a while. There was a lot of court battle, um, a lot of custody arguments. And you know, that's that's definitely rough on a kid. It doesn't exactly set the best example. And while my parents are great people, it certainly did make it uh, hard to get some of the perspective that uh, other folks take for granted growing up, I think. And on top of it, you know, my parents following their passions rather than uh, the almighty dollar never had a great deal of money, uh, especially spending all this money on lawyers for custody battles and everything else. So uh, I grew up in a pretty affluent community and we never could match that. We were always the poor kids at a rich school. And that, uh, that definitely contributed. And I always sort of knew I was kind of a weird kid. I was a little bit of the, the odd man out. Again, sounds like y'all maybe have some experience with that too. <laughs> sure. um, and I always said, you know, I'm a little socially awkward, but I never really took the time to unpack why that might have been. Well, as, as I've started my journey in the past few years to really diving into who I am and what contributes to some of these things, Turns out that that's probably related to the anxiety I didn't really know I was dealing with. Um, so ultimately, I tended to channel that when I was younger into into anger and angst instead of really unpacking why I wasn't feeling comfortable. I I I'm in. I don't know what to say. It, the amount of things that we have already, you have already said, that resonate so deeply with me. Uh, I feel like if I had grown up in Colorado that uh, we we might have been buddies. But um, I want to ask about the parents' divorce. That's not something I have gone through. And not so much the divorce, but the custody battle. I mean, how old were you when that was going on? 
Well, it was pretty continuous. Like I say, I was three and my sister was five when they split up. And I mean, that went for on and off, I would say. Obviously, I don't have the clearest memories, but five, six, seven years. And part of it was because they both got remarried, but they got remarried to people who were just utterly terrible human beings and very controlling, uh, both of my parents and of me and my sister, and ultimately pretty abusive people, not physically, but uh, emotionally and psychologically. And so they kind of stirred the pot and the, the custody battles would continue every time they didn't agree with the actions my parents were trying to come to. That sounds like a lot to unpack, not just the abusive, I mean, but anytime parents get remarried, I'm sure is difficult on a child, something that's hard to process. And sometimes I'd imagine it works, works out great, but the custody part is the part that kind of fascinates me right now. What is it like when your parents are battling over you? Well, it was difficult. And, you know, being a kid, they didn't bring us into the, the court proceedings or anything, but it was impossible not to know what was going on. And so it would be, well, this is the schedule when you get to visit this parent, and then it changes this week. And this is when you have to do this for this holiday. And, oh, well, then we're going to do this holiday again, because you weren't in this particular house on the actual day. And it kind of made everything more of an obligation than a privilege in a lot of cases. And one of the things that's I didn't realize had such an effect at the time was because there was such a, such acrimony and all this uh, fighting going on. One of the things that the court decided was that my sister and I had to go to therapy. And as y'all uh, are also, I'm a big advocate of therapy now, but when you're a little kid and it's forced on you by the law, it's not necessarily as effective. I mean, it's hard to tell what you're getting into as a little kid anyway, but then when you're told you don't get to play with your friends because you have to go to therapy, I mean, it really doesn't hit the same. And so it, it kind of turned me off of therapy for a lot of years because I just felt like it was a waste of time. It was my parents wasting more money. It was something that some judge I'd never met told us we had to do. And so I really kind of had some resentment that I never really realized. Yeah, it it turns out that way for a lot of things, right? When we, when we have tell stories of sobriety and, and therapy, if you're not ready, if you're not buying in, it's, it's, it's not going to do what you need it to do for you. Do you, do you, did you even re really understand what therapy was? I guess that might be a bad question. Cause I don't understand how, I don't think a kid can really understand what it is, but what, what did it feel like going and talking to someone who you didn't know and having to tell them about yourself? Yeah, it was pretty weird because they'd always ask about like, well, how are you doing? Uh, what are your parents saying to you about this? And it was clear that they were trying to unpack what was going on from my perspective related to all the, the custody battles. But I didn't understand what that meant. I didn't understand what the goal was. And so especially one of the memories I have when we first started therapy, I probably would have been four or five at that point, was I don't. I don't remember what the therapist said. I don't remember what we talked about, but I remember that she had a sandbox full of plastic dinosaurs. And so that was the best part is I'd sit there and whack these dinosaurs with a wooden spoon. And so I, I don't think I got a whole lot out of that as far as actual therapy. <laughs> well, they have those smash rooms or something now. Do you guys know? I, I, I don't know that that's the right word where you can pay to go in and break things. So hitting a dinosaur with a spoon sounds like a good time to me. 
And I haven't actually tried one, but uh, there are days when I think about it. Yeah. <laughs> Got a I've favorite. set one up in my backyard before. <laughs> it's like Office Space, the movie, when they're throwing the <laughs> printer or fax machine or whatever it is. Did Did you have a favorite dinosaur at the time? Uh, the Triceratops was always my favorite. Okay. Okay. Why? I'm asking the big um, questions. Couldn't couldn't really tell you, but uh, I still think they're pretty awesome. Uh, I'm a big D and D player, and uh, with certain classes, you can actually ride a triceratops into battle if your DM lets you. So, how can you get better than that? I I, I, I mean, that I, sounds pretty awesome. I would absolutely, if I was going into battle with any dinosaur, triceratops would be my top pick. Yeah. I had, when I was a kid, I had like a transformer triceratops. I don't know if it was like literally part of the transformer uh, family or if this was something that was just similar to transformers. Um, But it would be great if, you know, somehow uh, you could go into, you know, I'm I'm even going to say we should, I don't say we should edit much, but I was going to go in a stupid direction and I'm going to ask producer Dan to edit this part right now. No, I'm not going to edit this part right now because I'm going to tell you that that uh, was one of the Dinobots and his name was slug. Oh, okay. Dinobots named slug. Okay. Uh, if, if you're looking for Christmas presents for me or for uncle Satan, uh, you can, you can probably find those on eBay, right? Sure can. (laughs) <laughs> All right. I am so far off track right now. I, I apologize to everyone. Um, so you, how, how long did the custody battles go? I mean, did this go through your entire childhood? Uh, young childhood. By the time I got to, you know, early teenage years, things were not necessarily friendly, but were resolved for the most part. And part of that was because ultimately neither of those uh, remarriages lasted. My parents both got divorced again which I'm sure was not easy for them. One of my cats there. Hello. Uh, (laughs) But uh, certainly made it easier for me. Um, And also, you know, as I I got a little older, I definitely started exercising autonomy, uh, Mm -hmm. by which I mean I was rebelling pretty pretty noticeably. So uh, by the time I got to high school, I fell in with kind of the punk rock crew. And so there were a few of us who didn't have a lot of money at this rich school. And so we all just got our spiky jackets and spiked our hair with glue and listened to loud music and got drunk all the time. And just anyone who, who gave us any shit, we just respond with, with anger. And, you know, certainly it taught me a lot about independence, but uh, also probably helped me establish some habits that weren't as uh, helpful as I might've thought at the time. Okay. So you found your band to misfits. I'm, and I'm all for that, right? You found your community. We'll, we'll say, but what was I mean, it, it, you're, you're sitting here telling us you got into a little trouble or you found ways to cope. I'm not I, I guess I'm putting words in your way in your mouth and I'm saying finding ways to cope. But what what did that look like? Um, what kind of I mean, if you can talk about it, what what types of trouble were you getting into at that time? Well, yeah. And I mean, I think you you hit the nail on the head. I certainly didn't realize it at the time. And if you had asked me then, I wouldn't have said that I was coping. I was just uh rebelling i wasn't uh, following the dictates of society but looking back yeah i was i was trying to self-medicate i wasn't understanding that i was dealing with depression and anxiety and so i i did a whole lot of drinking and got into drugs pretty quickly i mean up to i think about 14 i was completely sober and then immediately went hard um so throughout high school i was drinking all the time and doing a lot of drugs whatever i could get my hands on really although 
despite the fact that I'm relatively covered in tattoos, I'm terrified of needles, which I'm very grateful for because it kept me from getting to a certain point. But I uh, ate a lot of hallucinogens in my day um, and smoked weed all, all the time. So I got caught drinking a couple times when I was underage. I'd get in fights at school on the street, um, you know, bust out of my window when I was supposed to be grounded or my parents didn't really ground me very much, but when I was supposed to be doing chores or something and go to punk rock shows and it ended up, uh, by the time from about, uh, 16 to 18, I was completely physically addicted to alcohol. And I mean, I got that out of my system a lot earlier than most people because my last year in high school, before I ultimately dropped out, I was going through multiple handles of vodka a week. I'd wake up, start knocking back shots and put some in my little bottle to go to school with and just keep drinking until I passed out in the evening. Wow. Did. Yeah. That's, that's a lot of drinking at that age when your mind is still growing up. And yeah. I mean, it's a lot of drinking at any age, <laughs> but while you're still developing your, your thoughts and your personality. How much do you think your parents knew? Uh, not as much as was going on, certainly. I mean, when I got caught getting wasted at school, I mean, obviously, my mom had to come pick me up, and they, they sent my parents information, and they sent me to the court system. And I mean, my mom took me to court to get yelled at by the judge and get sent to whatever it is they call a diversion or some stupid program that didn't do anything. Um, so they knew that I was drinking and certainly i'd come home smelling like weed plenty um but i don't think they ever had any idea how extreme it got yeah do you think it was they just kind of thought you were a kid being a kid maybe a little more on the extreme end but not approaching daily wake up and and drink and drink multiple handles um were they do you think they were scared at that point or just thought you had some grown up to do well my parents were always pretty pretty easy on discipline they both grew up as kind of hippies and so they they did very much have the idea that everybody should learn to be themselves and they were very supportive in that regard but mm -hmm. um yeah i mean i think my mom particularly uh who i lived with at the time was afraid and didn't necessarily have the tools to handle it my dad he kind of defaulted to anger kind of the same way that i did now that i think about it so when I was really at the height of my angst and we weren't getting along, we'd get into fights and we'd scream at each other. And at one point he threatened to put me in a mental institution. And so I didn't talk to him for a while. Um, so they didn't really know how to handle it, I guess, is the answer there. Yeah, it sounds hard. I, I, I can't imagine a lot of parents would know how to handle kind of some of the extremes that I'm hearing. Were you able to finish high school? Uh, no. So technically I'm a high school dropout. Uh, what it came down to was I wasn't going to class and everybody knew it. And the school that I went to was very proud of their graduation numbers. So eventually one of the vice principals pulled me in his office and for all intents and purposes, he said, you're going to sign this dropout paperwork or we're going to make your life a living hell. And I'm not going to lie. I didn't have any real desire to be there at that point anyway. So I said, screw you old man or something to that effect and <laughs> happily signed the paperwork and dropped out. And, and how old were you at that time? Uh, I would have been just 18 at that. Well, maybe 17 as I spent a couple of months bumming around and then my mom made it pretty clear if I wasn't going to school, I had to do something else if I was going to live in her house. And that was about the time that I 
I don't subscribe to the 12 step program personally. I have some, some reticence about it, but I do understand it helps a lot of people. I will say I definitely experienced the moment of clarity. You often hear folks talk about in those types of programs as there was one day when I went over to a, a, a friend's house where we used to do a lot of partying and I was already pretty drunk, obviously by that point, it was kind of a daily thing. And somebody had left some painkillers behind, nothing, nothing real strong, but like some Vicodin or Percocet or something. And we started blasting lines of that, which like why you would ever crush up a pill and put it up your nose at this point is kind of a mystery because it hurts. But um, and after we'd done that, I got it in my head, like I'm not going to sleep until I knock back at least 30 shots of vodka. And turns out uh, painkillers and alcohol should really never be mixed. So the next morning when I woke up, which I did wake up. I, I had that realization and like, shit, I, I really almost died. That was the stupidest thing I've done yet, which is really saying something. Um, and so I said, look, I have to do something different. And I decided to go sober for 30 days just to prove that I could do it. And I went cold turkey and it was absolutely terrible. That was right before I dropped out. And I remember about the clearest memory I have of that month was sitting in the back of my math class, just twitching. I mean, like, like a cartoon drunk, just sitting there twitching and scratching and irritable as all hell. Um, so I was getting my head a little bit straighter and I knew that school wasn't doing it for me and I was behind and I wasn't going to graduate on time, even if I stayed. So I just said, you know what, <laughs> it's time to make some changes. Um, and so I got my drinking under control, though I was still smoking a lot of weed and yeah, just, just dropped out and said, you know what, this is not for me. Okay. And we've heard, we've had guests, I think it was, uh, Bill in an early episode who talked about addiction and he had shared with us that alcohol is one of the few drugs that you can die from withdrawal. Did you... You said you went cold turkey. Did you have any help at all? I mean, some friends who knew that I was making the effort and supported me. But other than that, no. And at the time, I had no idea. <laughs> Actually, when I listened to that episode, it, it kind of caught my attention. I'm like, wow, okay, I guess I was lucky to make it through that experience, too. Yeah, well, we're, we're glad you did. And the other thing that I just kind of wanted to point out, you said that 12, the 12-step 12 programs don't resonate with you. And I'm glad you said that. Because a lot of times AA tends to be the first thing people think about. And there are other ways. And I know faith-based um, programs don't resonate with every single person. And I'm, and I'm not suggesting that it's the faith aspect that didn't resonate with you. I'm just uh, saying that I know I've, I've heard others talk about that before in my personal life. And I think that there are options out there that people can go. And um, I think that you're incredibly lucky that you were able to do it with, with a lot of your own, um, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, strength and, and support from friends. And I'm, I'm glad you made it. Um, I think you that you had friends that, like, you're lucky to have friends that were that good in high school. I don't know if I had any friends when I was drinking as much as I had that would have been wildly supportive like that. So yeah. good on you and good on them in high school. Yeah, for sure. So when you're 18 and have dropped out, what, what are you doing at that point? Are you, are, are you working? Are you still living at home? Well, pretty quickly I got a job. I mean, partly because my mom made it clear that that was 
that was the next step I needed to make. Um, and I mean, what 18 year old punk rocker wants to live with their mom, right? So I decided, hey, I'm 18, it's time to move out. So I got a, a job at a call center of all places, which is just a terrible industry. I, I really feel for anyone stuck working in a freaking call center, man. Um, but it did allow me to still have my mohawk and my spiky jacket when I went to work. So that was the main thing. <laughs> and they didn't wait, drop wait, wait, wait. Before, before you go any further, if there are pictures that have survived and you're willing to share, I would love to put them up when we post the episode, but we don't have to. I think there's a couple. They're kind of grainy old film pictures that I've digitized, but there's a couple out nice. there. Okay. Okay. All right. So go ahead. So for a couple of years, I really just, I mean, I did better with the drinking, like I said, but I just kind of partied when I wasn't working and don't worry, this is a long time ago, statute of limitation and all that, but I definitely was selling drugs for a while to make a little extra money and mm -hmm. smoking weed every day and just kind of raging it through the parks and, and raves and parties and kicking it with my buddies. And ultimately, I mean, I'll, I'll say I have a lot of advantages that not everybody has, and that's really been helpful to me. But my family said, like, look, you're not doing anything. So there's some money that was put aside for you to go to college. Maybe you should think about doing that. Um, and I realized, like, look, I don't want to work at this call center. This sucks. I don't want to do this my whole life. And so I thought about, well, what do I want to do? I should probably get some more education because that's really the only way you can make a decent living anymore. And so I started looking at different things that might be of interest to me. And I, I shadowed at different programs and I talked to different people. And ultimately I decided that, yeah, I want to go back to school. And I mean, it kind of kind of took a strange turn that one wouldn't necessarily expect, but I realized that I had always been fascinated with history and the past and culture. And so I decided, well, I want to go to school to be an archaeologist. Also, I watched Indiana Jones all the time when I was a kid, which, <laughs> you know, definitely influences a lot of us in this field. <laughs> That's amazing. And before we talk about that, I do want to talk about it. But you, you mentioned selling drugs, and I, I'm not going to dive deep into that, but it just made me wonder if during this time you weren't living the the, the best life I'll, I'll say um but were were you safe were you or do you ever, do you feel like you were endangering yourself at that time well we were mostly just uh moving small scale stuff like uh selling a lot of weed because it was before it was legal in colorado right and you know occasionally some hallucinogens also, I mean, the town I grew up in isn't exactly um, a dangerous place. So, you know, maybe not safe compared to some, some kids that I went to school with. There were a couple times when people tried to rob us and, you know, I got a knife pulled on me a couple of times, but never got into any any huge danger. Nobody ended up in the hospital. Nobody ended up dying from any of that. Although, unfortunately, in those years, I did lose friends from mostly overdoses and car accidents and things like that. Okay. Um, when you decided, well, it, I, I guess before the college part, does, does that mean you went and got a, a high school equivalency, a GED or something? Oh, absolutely. A GED and then on, on to where I am today. <laughs> and when you're, you're, you were told that there was this money to, to do this, was it really, I mean, was it mostly about not liking your job <laughs> or was there more to it? I mean, at first it really was because, 
I mean, the call center industry is just utterly horrible. Um, and I didn't make a lot of money. And so it was kind of both of those things. And then when I took the time to sit down and say, well, if I'm going to do this, what would I want to do? That's when it started to be, well, what actually matters to me? What really is of interest? What are my passions? Because I was never one of those who said, let's get a job to make money. Be nice to be able to live, certainly. But I wasn't going to say, let's go get rich and do something I hate. It was always going to be something that I really felt strongly about. Right. And what what age are you at this point? I'm probably 19 or 20 by that point. Okay. So it it wasn't long. You so when you you decided to go to college, you were still going as an what I'll what I'll say is immature young man and I'm not saying that about you personally, but you're 19 years old, you're 20 years old. And when I think of high school, or high school. When I think of college, I think of drinking Wednesday through Saturday. I think of get that was when I started getting into my trouble. And I'm just curious how that was for you. Did you go to a university where drinking was common um, and drinking and drugs and that type of stuff? Or what well, I mean, what was your experience like? Well, being a, a high school dropout with a GED, I had to start at a community college, which I think is usually a good idea anyway, because prereqs are prereqs and it's a hell of a lot cheaper. But yeah. certainly university wasn't going to accept me right away. So I went to about two years worth of classes and I was working full time. So it took yeah. me a little longer than two years um, at a local community college. And then I transferred to my hometown is, is a college town. So I transferred there. I didn't really want to move. That's where I had my people. That's where I, I knew the streets. That's just where I felt comfortable. Um, and it turned out that they actually had a very good program. Um, so by the time I got to university, I would have been 21, 22. So certainly not an old man, but older than most of the people I was in classes with. Mm -hmm. And I still had my friends, right? Because it was my hometown. So I was much more in control. I felt like I had a good handle on things, but I didn't stop partying at all. Um, it was... I mean, ranked uh, pretty regularly among the top five party schools in the nation. And it's a town where it's it's pretty easy to have a good time. So uh, I will say while I was uh, finishing up college, I got to be very good at riding my bike home from parties and shows while I was drunk, which also not super advisable, but I never got into any accidents. I, well, well, that's good. And I think it's kind of incredible that you've had and Dan mentioned it at, at that age, having friends that were supportive. Um, but I will also say that a lot of experiences I've heard about, about sobriety, I shouldn't say a lot, but I know at least some have resulted in people having to separate themselves about their friends. And I know I just said sobriety, and I know that we're not talking about sobriety from your side. Um, but even to change the lifestyle in a way that, in my opinion, from what I've heard, uh, has allowed you to survive, Um not drinking a handle of vodka, multiple handles of vodka a week. So I think, and, and maybe I'm misunderstanding. So can you tell us a little bit about those friends and the, the type of support you did or didn't get? Yeah, well, I mean, I was really lucky and I understand that more in uh, where I've, where I've ended up in the last few years, but I mean, there was a wide variety of people, but they were just the right people. I mean, they, they, really understood that you need to support your friends. And many of them are also very smart folks. Um, some have taken different paths, but they're all very successful now. 
those those who made it. Like I said, we did lose a few people along the way, um, but I have multiple friends who have PhDs. Um, we all we all decided that yes, we're going to do something with our lives and we're going to enjoy it at the time. So, you know, we'd we'd have parties where we'd help people homebrew beer and we'd go out drinking whiskey and skip home singing Irish songs at night. But we'd also ever make sure everybody got to class the next day and we'd help each other study and say, hey, this is the guy who understands chemistry. He'll help you with this. And I understand social sciences and things that don't require math. So I can help you with that um, and just kind of have each other's backs. And on the few occasions where, you know, somebody really got into trouble, people would show up and make sure that you know, either they pulled themselves out or nobody gave them a whole lot of shit about it. Yeah. And are these, is this, you, you, you kind of described yourself as a, a punk kid. Is this a punk crowd? For the most part. Um, there were a lot of house shows. I knew a lot of people who were big in the punk DIY scene really still are, to be honest. Um, and strangely, a lot of us ended up in the anthropology department. So a lot of punk rock <laughs> archaeologists. Um, okay. I love that. I mean, that sounds like a great movie series in itself. <laughs> it, it's remarkably common. There's something about archaeology, probably just because you don't have to deal with people and you can spend a lot of time off in the woods, which is definitely part <laughs> of what drew me to it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, so I was able to to not just finish, but I ended up graduating college summa cum laude. And that's one of the things I'm proud of. And like I say, there's some privilege and some support that let me get there that not everybody has. But I went from dropping out of high school to being top of my class almost. Um, and then was able to work as an archaeologist um, in compliance for a lot of years. And again, kind of decided, well, I need more money and looked at my options. And ultimately, which is where I am now, I, I decided, well, let's go get a Ph.D. And so I'm at uh, a, a really highly respected, one of the, the most prestigious research universities in the country. And so, I mean, I did. I, I went from not even finishing high school to teaching kids that were about the age I was when I was drinking and three handles of vodka a week now. Yeah. No, that that's awesome. And I did ask if it was the punk crowd because I have found that punks are usually some stand up fucking people. I mean, they're loyal if nothing else. Um, at least in my experience, don't know that it's always the same. Um, yeah, and I mean, a lot of the anarchist punk rockers, it's just kind of that uh, combination of angst and a little bit of political science, right? It's the idea of mutual aid instead of hierarchical authority, and we we really leaned into that. All right, so you're in school. Uh, happy ending. Everything's smooth sailing from there, right? Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha, yeah, no, not at all. Um, <laughs> so one of the things about going to school in my hometown is I, I never really left my bubble, um, so I didn't really understand how good I had it and also how much I relied on that to help me deal with what I didn't recognize was a bunch of pretty uh, potentially crippling anxiety. So I moved across the country to a very conservative part of the country. Um, it's a great school that I go to, but it is one of the most conservative institutions in the country. And I mean, I'd lived my whole life up to that point pretty much in one county. And so suddenly I'm in a very different place, with a very different outlook don't know anybody there. Um, and so I had this idea that you sometimes hear that, you know, grad school, that's where you make friends for life. And I really latched on to the people that I met very early on in grad school. And turns out not everybody is the friends that I had that I grew up with. Not everybody is as transparent, as open, as honest, and as supportive. And I just 
I didn't recognize that that was the case. And I, I probably was expecting more than some people were able to give, but it certainly was not what I had hoped for in, in a lot of ways. And a big part of that, which is um, kind of the the main events that led me to the next stage of my journey, I guess we'll say, was that uh, I did meet a colleague while, uh, while I was in grad school. Well, I'm not done yet, but um, who I developed some pretty strong romantic feelings for, and yeah. they were not reciprocated, um, which is fine. I mean, that, that happens. And, you know, I made my shot and she made it clear that that wasn't the case. Um, but unfortunately, I didn't. I didn't internalize that the way that I should have. And we were still friends for a while after that, but I wasn't honest with myself. I was hoping that she would change her mind. And I let the anxiety about what I wanted not being the case get the better of me. And I didn't, I didn't realize that at the time either, but somewhere along the line, and what's really hard is I still don't have a really clear picture of when exactly it started, but I, I overstepped. I didn't recognize that there were boundaries that I wasn't respecting. And mm-hmm. so she decided that she didn't want to be in contact anymore. And I didn't do terribly well with that. I didn't really acknowledge that that was what was happening. Um, and I, I now know that that was my anxiety taking control. I was worried about losing someone I cared about to the extent that I didn't recognize that I had already lost her. Um, and I mean, it was it was really difficult. There were in, in hindsight, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? But in hindsight, I can look back and say, okay, yeah, I should have caught onto that a lot earlier. And so I was really trying to maintain a friendship that didn't exist anymore. And I was reaching out to someone who really didn't want me to be reaching out. And I don't know the extent because obviously I can't speak for someone else, but I can now recognize that, yeah, I overstepped and I, I made her uncomfortable. And when I ultimately came to that realization, it was um, uh, another one of our, our friends and colleagues kind of called me out on it, but not in a direct way. And that was part of what was so hard about it was that I can look back now and I can say, look, this was really obvious to a lot of people. And clearly they were talking about it, but nobody was talking about it to me. And that's not to say anybody's responsible for my behavior. That's on me, but they had the choice to be honest with me. And I mean, my, my colleague and any of the people who were aware of it, they could have said, look, you need to stop doing this. And that's their choice. It's theirs to make, but it certainly would have been easier for everybody if somebody had just been honest with me and said, this is what you're doing. Because when I finally recognized it, I was called out in kind of a a backhanded, indirect way. And I lost my shit, man. I mean, it was the most shameful experience I've ever had. I looked at my behavior and I said, oh my God, I've really been acting that way. And one of the things that I've wrestled with is I said, look, if, if someone had acted to a friend of mine, the way that I acted towards her, I would have kicked the shit out of them. Um, Can we get a little bit more specific about the type of behavior? We don't have to say, you know, we don't have to get into, he said, she said exactly this, but um, yeah, are we, we're not talking about like physical assault here. Oh, of course not. No, I want to make it clear. Like she was not in any, danger except for discomfort and particularly because i mean we're colleagues we were in the same program that is very difficult because there's a lot of shared um, space both physically and intellectually um and so that's why it was particularly inappropriate i mean mostly it was i'd i'd text her i'd call her i'd message her on social media and i wouldn't get a response and that's what i see now i say god damn it i really 
should have noticed if she's not responding, there's a fucking reason for that. And that's where my anxiety took over. And I said, well, maybe I should back off. And then I tell myself, no, if she had a problem and she didn't want me to be her friend, she would tell me that. Well, that's how I, I would see. act. It's not how everybody else acts. Right. And I could see growing up with your punk rock friends in the same place that you've always been. I know for a fact that as soon as one of my punk rock friends knew that I was being a creep, they would have called me out in front of everybody. And they, you know, there is an embarrassment part of that. Some of that feels kind of asshole. And also it was a real good way to keep each other in check. And that was what I was used to in my early twenties. And I can imagine how the change in location and the change in people, uh, and without that check that I was used to, how I could be in a very similar boat. Yeah. And that's not well, exactly. And that's not to make excuses, right? I mean, no. you're 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 owning your behaviors. Um, but I think what a lot of people don't understand about kindness is kindness isn't. Oh, I don't want to make him feel bad. I mean, I think people feel like they're being kind by not telling people that they're fucking up or that they're doing something that they shouldn't be doing. Um, and, you know, maybe in reality, it's more that they want to avoid the discomfort, but the discomfort's going to grow and it's going to be worse. And it's not good for anyone to just sit there and be silent. And I mean, that sucks. I, I totally get it. And especially with the anxiety and I'm just going to say like, I'm new to the world of dating, uh, uh, online dating, right? And you gotta like, okay, if someone doesn't respond in a day, does that mean I shouldn't ever reach out to them again? Does that mean they're busy? Does that mean whatever? I don't know what the cues are and I'm having to learn them myself. And it's hard. And I I feel for you. Um did you did this ever result in like confrontation with this person? No, I mean ultimately it was it was someone else, and I mean it's it's exactly like you said. It's I I didn't realize until I took the time with this motivation to really learn more about myself that I just I don't pick up on social cues. I suck at understanding <laughs> what people are thinking, and part of that is because people were so straight with me when I was young. I just got used to people being in your face, whether it's comfortable or not. And don't get me wrong, it's a shitty situation. I understand it would have been hard for people to stand up and say something. But I mean, these are people, some of them I still interact with almost every day. And it's like, really, would, wouldn't it have been easier if you had just said, yo, dude, you're being a creeper. What the fuck? Um, and yeah, that would have sucked. And I would have owned it a lot easier because, I mean, when it finally happened, the, the disconnect between my values and what I was recognizing my behavior had become was so extreme. I mean, I went into the worst depression spiral of my life. It was, I don't know, probably five weeks or something. Every fucking night I would cry myself to sleep, literally with a gun against my head saying, if I'm such a shitty person, do I even deserve to be here? Um, which obviously I got past that because here I am. Um, and a lot of that at that point was just, well, what would my family do if I did? Uh, if I did proceed with suicide and, and ultimately uh, how much guilt would that impart onto my colleague? It's like, yeah, I fucked up and I behaved inappropriately, but does she deserve to have the guilt of that led to me blowing my head off? Like that's not fair to anyone. 
And I wasn't thinking about myself as much, but it is what helped me get through that. And it also said, I need to reevaluate how you address mental health because I can't do this alone. Sure. And, you know, I, you, you just said, you know, my shitty person are doing things a shitty person does. I'm just going to, I'm going to say it right now. Everybody waits for this point. I think you're a decent fucking human. And I do want to point out though, that one of the reasons that it's a decent fucking human and not an awesome fucking human or a perfect fucking human is because decent fucking humans make mistakes and it's allowed and it's okay. And the difference is what do you learn from it and how do you change your behaviors? And I guess I'll ask that right now. What have you learned from, from this situation? Well, exactly. And I mean, ultimately that's, that's the realization that I've been able to come to and it was hard and it took a lot of work, but um, I mean, one of those days I just said, I, I can't do this alone anymore. And so I, started looking for therapy and mm -hmm. I mean, being a student, uh, there was a campus resource available. So I basically just wandered into the campus counseling center and sat down and said, somebody has got to talk to me. Mm -hmm. And those resources are pretty limited, but they did help me get started and then find a long-term therapist who I'm still working with. Um, and with a lot of patience and a lot of work, she was able to help me understand like, look, this was a mistake. If mm -hmm. this was who you are and you were as bad of a person as you sometimes thought, well, at the time I was thinking you wouldn't feel bad about it. And it's like, oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's the disconnect between the behavior and the values kicking. Right. Um, right. And so ultimately what I learned from it was really to recognize like, this is anxiety. And like, I didn't even think, I knew I was a high stress dude, but I didn't really think about, oh, well, this is anxiety. And it was Sometimes it's a really physical trigger where I'm sweating and shaking and muscles get clenched up, but sometimes it's in my head. And when I get anxious, I go to extremes, I catastrophize. And when it gets into a cycle, I don't even recognize. So my thoughts will tell me that something's happening and that is not based in reality at all. So the real thing that I've learned and that I would hope potentially my experience can help somebody else recognize without getting to the point of suicidal depression was that you have to take the time to step back and say, okay, where are these thoughts coming from? Is this something real or is this my anxiety telling me lies? Because those lies can get in your head in ways that, I mean, I really didn't understand. So this is the part of these interviews where I often like get goosebumps. I, you know, in, in specifically, it's often the point when someone realizes or communicates that so much of, of, of these types of journeys are understanding yourself, learning about you. And I will say that I had a self-perception of being a laid back guy and people would call me high strung uptight. I can see the smile on Dan's face. <laughs> I want to no, say what you're thinking, Dan. What are you thinking? I I mean, I, 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 I would agree with those people that would say those things about you. <laughs> no, I, in, in, I think where the break from reality that I was having was that about a lot of things I am about a lot of things, you know, I can give people grace. I can forgive. I can do a lot of those things. Um, but there's also tiny fucking things that can be can create like 
anxiety and or anger or you know a lot of different things that I never recognized in myself. And I I mean it when I say that I get goosebumps over here when when I hear that cuz it's probably been the best part of my journey is is learning about me understanding of myself and being being more self-aware and i think that your relationship with this colleague of yours um there was a lack of some self-awareness and i mean you're you're, you're describing it there, there certainly was but um i think you've come a long way it sounds like you've come a long way but i do i you know i would love to talk for another hour about what it's like being uh going into to archaeology and uh we're not gonna do that but i am i'm curious like when when are you going to finish your program and what 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 is the next step from here what do you what do you do when you grow up uncle satan <laughs> <laughs> well yeah that's the question right uh, a lot of people would say i'm pretty grown up already and i'm still wondering <laughs> that sometimes but that is uh i mean that's kind of the the bright spot that i have to take away is that i was able to get through all of this without my support network being right there and in a place that isn't super comfortable at times. And I'm, I didn't, I mean, it didn't kick me out of the program. It didn't get me to the point where I couldn't continue to, to chase this dream. So it's kind of, kind of like kryptonite to a grad student to ask when you're going to finish. Cause it's always the question, <laughs> but uh, hopefully less than a year. So sometime in the next year, I will finish uh, my last bit of analysis and writing and do the okay. defense. And then it's going to be kind of, dependent on the job market. But um, I will say that uh, I plan to move the hell out of uh, this part of the country and get to a place that's a little bit uh, easier for me to find the, my people and a little bit more in line with my worldview. Sure. That's going to be a big thing, uh, whatever form it takes. But uh, if the right academic position presents itself, then I would love to be a professor. That's where a lot of research happens in my field. And I found I actually really enjoy teaching, partly because I can try to pass on some of the importance of my values and my worldview to the, the next generation. I mean, that makes me feel old and it sounds kind of cheesy, I know, but it really is very rewarding when you can help kids learn that the world is a lot bigger than what they've experienced. And if not, there's a lot of jobs in the industry and the federal government where you still need to do archaeology and you still get to protect and experience important heritage. And so, I, I mean, uh, I'm going to ask a dumb question, but what is do archaeology mean? <laughs> like, what, Well, it can mean a lot of things, but um, I mean... What I really like is actual field archaeology. So I go out and I, I walk through the woods and I say, look, there's something here that suggests people were here a long time ago. And so then I start digging holes. And uh, I mean, you do. It's it's kind of like so cool. movies and TV shows. You set out some string and you dig a square hole and you dig it really slowly. And uh, you find, I mean, my thing is ancient stone tools, right? That's one of the things I work with. So I'll find a, a projectile point, an arrow or spearhead kind of thing from six, seven, 12,000 years ago. And it's like, yeah, nobody's seen this in <laughs> millennia. Uh, and then I take it back to the lab and look at it under a microscope or other magnification cool. for years until I actually write something about it. That's, a, that's so cool. Do, have you ever considered doing a, a live broadcast of a podcast in the field with positively terrible while you're finding tools that nobody's seen in thousands of years. Cause I think Dan and I would both show up for that. 
<laughs> I think it would have to be, if it was live, we'd have to plan it real carefully, because the thing about archaeology is there is a lot of really, really boring, repetitive stuff until you actually <laughs> find the cool stuff. So it would be like three weeks of, wait, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And then and then about ten minutes of like, yeah, we got it. <laughs> right, so as soon as you find something, you put it back in the ground and pretend you didn't find it. Yeah, that's when we turn on the webcam. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Hey, I, I can only imagine that there's plenty of YouTube channels that do just that and i will also say a call a shout out to my dad uh he 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 is a detectorist he's a metal detector guy he goes out and he loves it and he's not finding the type of stuff uh and making the <laughs> making the huge leaps in in our knowledge of the world that maybe archaeologists are but he fucking loves it and finding a dime from 100 years ago uh is pretty cool to him so uh, i understand the allure i think that it's pretty amazing that you're going after you know how many kids say that they want to be an archaeologist when they're 12 years old and i think it's so fucking cool that you did that i've got a marketing degree uh i was not saying i want to do marketing when i <laughs> when i get bigger um so i'm trying to figure out what i want to do with my future at this point so i think i'm a little bit older than you and uh when i grow up i think that i want to help people and be a therapist and that's a story for another day because i've just left my career and i'm about to figure that out but uncle satan this has been great thank you so much for coming on yeah thank you guys i really appreciate the the platform that you have here because i think that there is still a lot of work to do in our society on just understanding that mental health is real and it is important and people don't need to carry the stigma with them for understanding that they need a little bit of help here and there. Absolutely. Agree completely. Thank you so much for being here with us, man. Yep. Appreciate it. We're humbled. We're honored. Uh, we love talking to you today. Thank you so much. Once again, listeners, make sure to follow us. Uh, on at Positively Terribles, on what are we on? Instagram. And We're on all Facebook, of them. Um, and follow the podcast wherever you listen to it. And as always, people, this has been absolutely positively terrible. I met you back at Tonica Fest. I confess I was nervous and stressed because I thought you were the
nervous and stressed because I thought you were the best I was right. Positively Terrible is a part of the Terrible Podcast Network.